if you will, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. Last week we began looking at Psalm 22 by looking essentially at the first half of the psalm and focusing in particular on the sufferings of Christ. And this morning, we'll pick up where we left off last week in verse 19 and cover the remainder of the psalm down to verse 31. We will be looking in particular not only at the sufferings of Christ, but what was prophesied to happen after those sufferings. The spread of the gospel ultimately to the ends of the earth. So we'll begin by reading, as I said, in verse 19, picking up in the middle of the psalm. Of course, this is a, a psalm that David wrote long ago under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we begin by reading in verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, Glorify Him and stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and He has not hidden His face from Him, but has heard when He cried to Him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. The afflicted shall eat, and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve Him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn, that He has done it. Let's go to the Lord again in prayer. Father, long ago, through your inspired prophets in your word, you spoke of great things that were to come. You clearly spoke of the coming of a king, of the anointed Messiah who would suffer great affliction and suffer 
on behalf of His people, bearing in His own body the penalty of their sins. But you also spoke long ago about what would follow this great work of redemption, this salvation that you would give to your King. As we even see in this psalm this morning that this work would spread. That the nations, the families of the earth would hear about your King and about what He has accomplished and they would come and they would worship and they would tell to one another and to coming generations. They would speak of His righteousness and what He has accomplished. Long ago, you were preparing your people for the days that were to come. And Lord, we are especially grateful that we find ourselves now being a part of this fulfillment, being a part of the families of the earth and the nations who have heard of the glorious Gospel of Christ and who now desire to come and to worship and to give the King all the glory that is due to His name. And so Lord, I pray that as we consider this prophetic word this morning, You would most especially help us to see afresh again the glorious Gospel that brings us to Christ and will keep us to the end. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it is an unquestionable fact that one of the most important things that a person can do for themselves is to, of course, be in the Word of God regularly. To grow in it, to read it, to meditate upon it, and to understand it better. And there's many reasons that we could list for this very fact. One of the most obvious, of course, is that it is through the Word of God that we are brought to a saving knowledge of Christ. It is through the Word and the Word alone that we come to know Christ, believe into Christ as we considered this morning, and are justified before the Lord. But I think another important reason that we could give for being in the Word and being in Scripture is that it is Scripture itself that gives us a knowledge about the true story of history. The true story of the world, which then gives us all a framework for understanding the world we live in, for understanding who we are in it and where we are in it. It provides us with the true meta-narrative about where we come from, about what our nature is, about where we are going, and many more things that we could name. And it's important to understand this storyline of Scripture, this, again, narrative arc of history. Because how we understand the story of the world is necessarily going to have profound effects on how we live in it. If we have a wrong understanding 
of what the world is about, of where history is moving, we will necessarily live our lives in a lie. There are, of course, at the present time, as there has been for the beginning of time, many competing narratives about the world. One could think, for example, about the story that is told through the lens of evolution and naturalism. The evolutionists tell us that we are all products of random acts of nature. The world consisted of tiny microorganisms that eventually randomly produced fish and then produced animals and ultimately humans. We are just distant ancestors from the animals. And this, necess- this narrative necessarily implies that there is no God. And that likewise, there is no purpose in the world. Everything is random. Nothing has ultimate meaning. We might, of course, subjectively create purposes within our own minds, create a sort of philosophy of life within our own minds, but ultimately, it's not grounded in anything real. It's just what we want to tell ourselves to make sense of the fact that we're descendants of fish. And when someone embraces this kind of narrative as true, the moral implications that result are going to reflect this story. It's going to reflect this narrative of history. The story of the evolutionary world is one of pure chaos and randomness. And therefore, the morals that follow are likewise pure chaos and random. That's the world we live in now. Even many people who have religious views about the world, this basic naturalistic philosophy about the world, this secular idea of the world has woven itself so deeply in the fabric of our culture that it has produced this chaotic world where anything and everything goes. You can be whatever you want to be. It doesn't matter because the world is random. And like I said before, there are many other narratives that men embrace that will necessarily shape how they live in the world. Which is why it is so important for Christians and really for anyone to know the story of Scripture. Because it is Scripture that tells us what the true narrative is. It is Scripture that gives us the perspective of the world from the vantage point of the One who made it and of the One who will bring it to its conclusion. And therefore, it is Scripture that guides and shapes us to be able to live in the world 
as God Himself intends us to live in the world. And this morning, as we come to the second half of Psalm 22, we come to a passage that really unfolds for us one of the key threads in the story of redemption and thus the story of history. In poetic form, this is a passage that shows us, teaches us, the beautiful picture of the redemption that Christ the King accomplishes and subsequent to that work, the spread of the Gospel throughout all the world that follows. And as we look at this passage today, I want to unpack this this idea, this story with, with with a view to this narrative in mind so that ultimately we can know where we are in the story and therefore from that vantage point have a great hope in what God is still accomplishing in the world. And as we move through the passage, we can see this story of the Gospel essentially in three parts. First, we see that the King cries out. This King about whom all of history is pointing. We see the King crying out for deliverance. And then He's saved. And then second, we find that in response to this salvation that the King receives from the Lord, the King then declares with joy this salvation of God to His brothers. To those who, like Him, love the Lord and seek to follow Him. And then last, we see the conversion of the nations that happens by virtue of this salvation the King has accomplished. So let's begin first by looking at the King crying out for deliverance and being saved in verses 19 to 21. Now, this section, of course, continues the theme of the first half of the psalm where we saw last week the sufferings of Christ on the cross being described prophetically through the sufferings of David. As a prophet, as we've seen before, David understood his own life as a kind of foreshadowing of the life of Christ. There's a a kind of a, a blending of the two persons, of David and his future offspring, Christ. And we can see this this kind of blending of the two lives, that of David and Christ, being understood in this way in the New Testament, even by how the author of Hebrews quotes this very psalm. So, we read earlier, for example, in Hebrews chapter 2, The author of Hebrews is quoting there Psalm 22, verse 22, where David writes, again, David, the inspired author, David writes, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And then the author of Hebrews very freely identifies the speaker in the psalm as he who sanctifies 
and the founder of our salvation, which, of course, in the context, refers to Christ. He very freely says, this is the words of Christ. This is what he's saying about his people. They are his brothers. The point being that the New Testament clearly understands that David is the original author of this psalm. But it also understands his psalms, like this one, as being ultimately about and finding its fulfillment in the person and life of Christ. And so here in verses 19 to 21 of the psalm, we have a cry coming from the mouth of David the king, but also, also and ultimately, it's a cry that's coming from the mouth of Christ, the King of Kings. And he's asking here for deliverance from all the enemies who've been described previously in the psalm. He's asking for deliverance from the dogs, from the lions, from the wild oxen. And these are, of course, all references to the men who were seeking to devour Christ. These are your scribes, your Pharisees, your Roman soldiers, the crowds of people who were mocking Him. These are the dogs seeking to devour Him. And He's crying out to God that the Lord would save Him from all these enemies. When Christ was on the cross, crying out the very first words of this psalm, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? It was not as if the only part of this psalm was the only thing that was on His mind. We will see especially when we come to the very end of the psalm that it was in fact the entirety of this psalm that was on his mind. And therefore, even this prayer that we're looking at here in verses 19-21 to is what's on his mind as he's on the cross. It's a prayer for salvation. Oh, you my help. Come quickly to my aid. Even this prayer was His offered up to the Father. And notice with me also how we see in these verses not only the cry for deliverance, but also the cry answered and the deliverance given. Every line, if you look with me again at verses 19 to the first part of verse 21, every line is a request. Come quickly. Deliver my soul. Save me. But then, at the end of verse 21, it changes to an indicative statement. A statement of fact. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, we're not told here specifically how the Lord saves the Christ. But we are told 
that He saves him. That He is rescued. And though we lack the details in this immediate passage, we of course know the details and know what happened from the rest of Scripture. We know that when Christ was surrounded by His enemies and crucified on the cross and entrusting His Spirit to His Father, the Father did not fail Him. He did not leave Him to die and waste away in the grave. Because after His death and His burial in a tomb, in accordance with Scripture, He was then rescued and raised from the dead. And in that resurrection, He triumphed over His enemies. He triumphed over those who had been mocking Him, saying, if you're the King, just take yourself down from the cross. Now, why would He do that if in three days He would do something even greater? Rising from the grave and leaving the tomb. He put all the principalities and powers in that moment to open shame and was given victory over all of them. And so it is the Gospels that teach us, of course, exactly how God rescued His King in the midst of His suffering. This psalm shows us that He would be rescued. The Gospels show us how that rescue took place. But additionally, we not only see here the King crying out and then being delivered, but we also see the King declaring after this salvation the salvation of God to his brothers. And this is in verses 22 to 26. Now, in this particular passage, there are two statements that are made in particular that require us to know something about the Old Testament background of worship in the temple. Because the imagery that the psalm is using here, particularly in this section, is drawn directly from that temple worship. The first statement is in verse 22, where we read that in response to the Lord's deliverance given to His King, David writes, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And the other statement is in verse 25 says there, from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. Now, in the Old Testament, when someone wanted to give thanks through praise to the Lord, it was often not how we think of and practice thanksgiving. Right? We tend to view thanksgiving largely as just words. Right? They're words you say. Maybe you say them in prayer. Maybe you sing them in worship. But when we lift up thanksgiving to God, it's largely just through, through words. And that's not, of course, a bad thing. That's an expression of our heart. 
but that's very different from how thanksgiving was often given in the Old Testament. We can do our thanksgiving at any time and in any place. But again, that wasn't the case under the Old Covenant. In the Old Covenant, thanksgiving was often something that you would do in the context of worship in the temple at designated times during the year. And to give thanks meant that you were also at that time offering sacrifices to the Lord as an expression of thanks and celebration of God's goodness. And very often in response to a vow that you had made. And that specifically you're giving thanks for. So for example, the prophet Samuel's mother, Hannah, You'll, you'll remember she, she makes a vow to the Lord. She's a barren woman. She's praying to the Lord. Lord, grant me a child. And she makes a vow that if the Lord gives her a son, then she would give her son to the Lord and he would serve him all the days of his life. That, that's an example, right, of a vow that someone would make to the Lord. And when the Lord answered those prayers, answered the substance of what was said in the vow, the person who made the prayer would then go to Jerusalem during one of the three major feasts of the year. And at the feast, they would bring into the temple a burnt offering as a vow offering. And the animal would be sacrificed. Its blood by the priest would be sprinkled on the horns of the altar. Portions of that animal would be burned. Other portions of it would then be given to the priest, to the person who's offering the sacrifice, and to the people who are with him so that they could all eat together of this sacrifice. So it's a kind of formal celebration. There's feasting that is taking place with this thanksgiving. But when that sacrifice was offered, the one who brings the sacrifice would then tell publicly the people who were present why he was bringing the sacrifice. Why he was giving thanks. He would essentially be giving a testimony of God's faithfulness to him and would explain that his vow or thanksgiving was about God's answering of his prayers. We have an example of this, for example, in, in Psalm 66, of the kinds of things that would be said publicly in worship. In verses 13 to 15 of that psalm, again, Psalm 66, the psalmist says that he's going to go to the temple to perform his vows and offer his burnt offerings. And then in verse 16, he calls on the people to hear his testimony. He says, come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I have a testimony to offer as I offer this sacrifice. Come and hear it. And then he explains in verse 17 
Um, he, he says, I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. I, I lifted up a prayer to God, in other words. And he says that if he had cherished iniquity in his heart, God would not have listened to him. God would not have answered that prayer. But then, in verse 19, he says, but truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Right? He's thanking God with sacrifices in worship in the temple because God had answered his prayers. So you see, the vow offering and the thanksgiving is a public celebration in the temple where God is being worshipped. And in the context of that worship, the worshiper is bearing witness to how God has been good to him and how God has answered his specific prayers. The same thing is what's happening in Psalm 22. That's what the king is describing as taking place. In response to God rescuing him, the king says that he's going to tell of the Lord's name to his brothers. Which is to say, he's going to speak about what God has done for him. To speak of his name, of course, is to speak about his reputation, about who he is, about the wonderful works of salvation he has accomplished. And like in Psalm 66, the king here summons the people of God to hear his praise. He says in verse 23, You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. And he explains the reason for his praise in verse 24. He says, For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And here, He's the one who's afflicted. He's the afflicted one. And he's saying the Lord did not despise me in my affliction. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Right? God has answered the prayers of the king, in other words. And the king is in the temple telling his brothers of the goodness of God. And this is in the context of a feast and celebration where everyone will be able to partake of the sacrificed food that is being offered. As we see as the, verse, as the passage continues in verse 26, the afflicted, the meek, the lowly, perhaps even you might translate it as the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. You see here, He's inviting the people to partake together of the burnt offerings of thanksgiving in response to God saving Him. And so the people join in the celebration with the King 
and feast and praise the saving works of God. So in this section, right, the Old Testament imagery is quite thick. Right? It, it is very robust. But the basic idea is that the king will tell and give praise and rejoice in the saving work of God on his behalf. And he's going to tell this to his brothers, to those who like him serve the Lord. And of course, this is what we see Jesus doing after the resurrection. We know from the Gospels that when He's raised from the dead, He doesn't just immediately ascend to the right hand of God. He stays with His disciples for some 40 extra days. And what does He do while He's with them? He's eating with them, sharing meals with them, and most especially, telling them what God had done, why He had to do it, and why what occurred in His death and resurrection was perfectly in accordance with the promises of God. He teaches them further about the Kingdom of God and prepares them to go into the world declaring this message to others. He's telling of the goodness of God to His brothers in the midst of the congregation. And so again, we have in this psalm the king crying out to God, being saved, and then the king declaring this salvation of God to his brothers. But of course, what we know from the rest of Scripture, what we know from the Gospels, is that the Gospel doesn't end there. It doesn't just stop with Jesus dying on the cross and being raised again. Now the Gospel is not only about Christ's victory over the grave, but it's about how His death and resurrection brings salvation to all the peoples is applied to the nations. We see this in Jesus' words, of course, to His disciples in the Great Commission when He declares to them that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Him and He commands them to go and now make disciples of all the nations. We see this work of the Gospel spreading to the peoples in the Gospel but we also see it here. Foretold of long before it ever happened in verses 27 to 31. This final section here is largely about the conversion of the nations. And this conversion happens as a consequence, as a result of the saving works of God given to His King. Verses 27-28 to 28 tell us that the nations will be converted. We read first that all the ends of the earth shall remember. Right, what does that mean? What does it mean that all the ends of the earth shall remember? 
Well, we know from Scripture, right, that to forget the Lord means that you do not know Him. You don't obey Him. You have no saving knowledge of who He is. You have no care, no concern for Him. We can read, for example, in Psalm 106, verse 21. It says of the Israelites who, after having just been saved from Pharaoh in Egypt, what, what did they do? They fashioned a golden calf to worship. And the psalm says that they forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt. So to forget God means that you don't know Him. You have not understood who He is or what He has done. But on the other hand, to remember means the opposite. It means that you do know Him. That you do love Him. That you obey Him. That you know of His works and His ways. And because of who He is, you follow Him. And therefore, when verse 27 says that all the ends of the earth shall remember, it means that they will have heard of Him. They will have learned of Him known His works, known His ways, known what He has done in saving His King. And upon receiving that message, how do they respond? Verse 27 again. They hear the message, they remember and turn to the Lord. They turn away from their idolatry from their wickedness, and they turn to the Lord. It's like the Thessalonian Christians when they themselves had heard the Gospel from Paul. When they had heard about who this King of the Jews was. What He had done on the cross. How He was reconciling men to Himself. When they hear the message of the death burial, and resurrection of Christ. What does Paul say of them? How did they respond? 1 Thessalonians, verse 9 of chapter 1, he says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. They turned to the Lord because they remembered now by hearing of what the Lord has done. These Thessalonians who are a people from among the nations, a people from among the families of the earth, heard the message of the Gospel, repented, left behind their sin and idolatry, and embraced the Lord Jesus as their King. And what this conversion then produces in people is that it makes them a worshiping people. When you come to Christ, when you turn away from your idols and to Him, you become a worshiper of God and of His Christ. Again, Psalm 22, verse 27 says that all the families of the nations shall worship 
before you. Right? This is the evident, obvious fruit of conversion. Again, when someone comes to Christ, you don't have to pull their teeth to get them to worship the Lord. We read from Psalm 117 earlier. Praise the Lord. You don't have to convince them that that's a good thing. They want to do that. They want to sing His hallelujah and rejoice in what He has done for His Christ and for them. They love to worship. And of course, why wouldn't they? If the Lord has saved them, what could prevent them from giving Him the honor and glory that is due His name? They know and understand that their Lord is God. They understand that He deserves worship, that He has commanded worship, that He is their King who is to be obeyed, that as the psalm says, kingship belongs to the Lord, and they long to give to Him their worship and obedience. That's why I think it's very strange when you come across Christians, professing Christians who have no desire to worship the Lord and to be with the people of God. That makes no sense at all. It's an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. It's like saying up is down and light is dark. The words and the actions don't make sense. There's no such thing as a true Christian who does not love the body of Christ, does not want to be with them, and does not want to worship the Lord. That's what happens when the heart is transformed. When the heart of idolatry and evil is removed, and the new heart is given to the new believer, it now beats for the living God. And therefore, if there is someone who has no taste for the things of God, it is perhaps profound evidence that their heart does not actually beat. It's stone. It's dead. And it needs to be made new. The Gospel, perhaps, needs to be heard afresh. And upon hearing it, that person needs to repent of sin and turn to God. Conversion makes you a true worshiper of God. But we not only see here the conversion of the nations, we also see something of the scope of this conversion. Certainly what we just read is that all the ends of the earth shall remember. And this phrase could lend itself to a heretical doctrine of universalism, where the idea is that every single individual will be saved. But there are things within the context of Scripture, of course, 
that add some qualifications to this. Again, as we should know from other doctrines that are sometimes in dispute, all does not always mean all in this universalizing sense. And we know again from, uh, from elsewhere in Scripture, from the context of Scripture, and even from this, this very passage, that there is a definition, there is a qualification, if you will, that defines what the scope of all the ends of the earth is. For one thing, we know that universalism is not true because we could look at a psalm like Psalm 149, verse 7, that says that God will execute vengeance on the nations. Right? So you have in one place all the nations worshiping the Lord, coming to the Lord. You have in another place the nations experiencing the vengeance of God. We recognize as well from the context that this phrase can describe all different kinds of people. Verse 29, if you notice with me there, can provide for us some clarification. Verse 29 describes in poetic form the fact that both those who are incredibly healthy and those who are on the verge of death will comprise the kind of people who will worship the Lord. It says there, all the prosperous, or literally all the fat ones of the earth, eat and worship. And in contrast to this, the next line literally says, those who are going down to the dust and whose soul does not stay alive shall bow down before him. Now, these are not people who are already dead, but these are people who are very close to death. It could be because of their health is failing them, or it could be because they are incredibly poor in contrast with the prosperous or the fat ones of the earth. worshiping the Lord. You have some who are well off and some who are not. You have some who have many comforts and some who have great afflictions. There are prosperous Christians who worship the Lord in America. There are impoverished Christians who worship the Lord in a country like Malawi. There are Christians worshiping freely in one land, and there are Christians worshiping in secret because of persecution in another. And all of them together are worshiping the Lord. So it's not that it's every single individual who will be a worshiper of the Lord. But here, what the psalm is describing is that all kinds of people from all over the world will be worshiping the Lord. And this worship will continue. Not for a single generation or one here or there, but it will continue all throughout history. Verse 30 says, 
that posterity or seed or offspring shall serve Him, and that it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. There will not be, in other words, a time, nor has there ever been a time since the resurrection of Christ when Christ will not be receiving worship from the nations. There may certainly be times of great darkness where it seems as if the Gospel is failing and the church is receding and evil is growing. And in fact, I think there are good reasons biblically to understand that there will be ebbs and flows of Gospel influence all throughout history. But there will never be a day when the Gospel is utterly cut off and the church drifts away into oblivion. Christ will always have a generation of worshipers because He said the gates of hell shall never prevail against His church. And so we see that the scope of this global worship of the Lord will encompass all kinds of people from all kinds of places throughout all of the generations. But lastly, I want to note also what we see about the message that will be told. What does the psalm say will be, will be spoken about between the nations as they come to worship God? Verse 30 says that it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. But what's the content? What is being told about the Lord? What are the nations telling one another and passing down to subsequent generations? Well, I want you to notice with me what verse 31 says. It says, They shall come and proclaim what? His righteousness to a people yet unborn. They will proclaim His righteousness. Is not the central message of the Gospel centered on the righteousness of God? When we preach the Gospel, what do we preach? What do we tell to others? We preach that man has transgressed, sinned against a righteous God, that he has rebelled, and that because of that rebellion, he deserves the righteous judgment of God to fall upon him. We preach that God is a righteous judge, and as a righteous judge, he must necessarily deal with evil, punish the wickedness. We preach that this same righteous God has determined to be gracious to sinners while at the same time upholding His righteous character. And therefore, He sends His Son to be a righteous, blameless substitute a sacrifice on our behalf 
so that the punishment that we deserve falls upon Him and the righteousness that we do not possess ourselves is given to us. We preach that if a man repents and believes in Christ, God will justify him. He will declare him to be righteous on the basis of the work of His Son. And we preach that Christ will come again to judge the living and the dead, and He will execute all of His righteous judgments. The whole message of salvation, in other words, the message of the Gospel centers around the basic concept of righteousness. And this, friends, is what the psalm says will be proclaimed to a people yet unborn. To the coming generations, they will be told about God's righteousness. But along with this message, the message of righteousness, and closely related to it, is the statement that we find at the very end of the psalm. He has done it. What will be proclaimed of the Lord is the summary statement. He has done it. We saw last week that while Jesus was hanging on the cross, In agony, he cried out the words of this psalm, right? The very first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I told you last week that when he utters those words, those are not words that are communicating any idea, any statement of unbelief. This was not a statement that conveyed the notion that Jesus doubted that the Father would save Him. It was a statement that expressed how He felt, what His experience was on the cross, having the wrath of God poured out upon Him. But I said that it was not a statement of unbelief. Because Psalm 22 is itself not a psalm of unbelief. Jesus, no doubt, had the whole psalm replaying in His mind. And we know that's the case because of the very last words He said before He gave up His Spirit and died. And what were they? It is finished. Those are His final words before He breathes His final breath. It is finished. An echo of the very last words of Psalm 22. He has done it. From the perspective of the nations who hear of God's saving works, They would proclaim, we would proclaim, He has done it. But from the perspective of Christ, who is the one 
doing the saving work. Who is the one accomplishing the work on the cross. The final words of this psalm upon his own lips would be, it is finished. In the same way that when God revealed His name to the people of Israel as I am, and then they refer to Him as Yahweh, which means He is. A revelation and a response. God says, I am. The people respond, He is. So also, when Christ accomplished the work of redemption on the cross, He revealed the completion of that work in His words, it is finished. And now, we who receive that work respond from one generation to the next. He has done it. It has been finished. This tells us, friends, that in Jesus' darkest moment, hanging on the cross, what is He doing? He has the whole of Psalm 22 replaying in His mind. Reciting it. Meditating upon it. Beginning with, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? and moving all the way to the end where the completion of the work reaches its end and we come to the statement, He has done it. He has in His mind the whole story of the Gospel. The whole story of history. He knows because of the Word of God, because of what the psalm says, and what he's replaying, he knows how this ends. It's not going to end with him dying, and that's the end of the story. It's going to end with God rescuing him, and then the nations hearing of that rescue, and the nations who were involved in crucifying Christ coming to Him, now bowing before Him to worship Him forever and ever. He's replaying in His mind the whole story of the Gospel. And friends, it is to be the same for you and me. When you are in your darkest moments, what do you do? How do you respond? Jesus models for us what we are to do. No one has endured the kind of suffering He did. And what does He do? He has hope. He has trust in the Lord even though everything has been terrible. Suffering is great. And yet He keeps in His mind the end of the story. That's what you have to do. Perseverance in the faith. Walking faithfully with the Lord requires that you know the story of history. That you know the Gospel. The beginning and the end of things. 
so that when the chaos begins swirling around you, you know how everything's going to end. You know that whatever affliction is going on now will be but a moment and will be nothing in comparison to the eternal weight of glory that is to come. This is why it is so important for us, friends, to have the story of the Gospel in our minds and on our hearts. It will determine necessarily how we will live in this life as we are awaiting for the return of our Lord. We are confident that He will come again in the same way He came before. And when He comes, He will come in the fullness of His glory, bringing the might of the kingdom of God. We are told in Matthew 13, in the parable of the wheat and the tares, that there will be essentially ebbs and flows. There will be people who come to know the Lord, who hear the message of the Gospel and believe, and at the same time, the evil one will sow evil people who will live among us, and the two will grow together until the end of the age comes. And what will Christ do? He will send out His angels. He will remove all causes of sin and evil from His kingdom. And then what will happen? The righteous who have trusted in Him will shine like the sun. That's the end of the story. And so friends, we are to keep that in mind as it gives us the strength and the foundation to persevere through whatever trials may come our way. Let's go to the Lord and close with prayer. Well, Father, we praise You today because You are indeed a good God. And though we deserved nothing more than to be a part of the nations upon whom Your vengeance comes, in Your grace and in Your mercy, You sent the Gospel and the Word of God to us. And You gave us ears to hear and understand and know and receive that Gospel so that now we become worshipers of the Lord and will tell of Your righteousness to the coming generations and will say that Christ has done it. He has finished the work of redemption. We are grateful, God, for Your steadfast love and faithfulness. And I pray that this Word, this Gospel, this message of Your righteousness would keep us until the end. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.